Hi, this is Christian Kuhn of Urban Village Church in Chicago. Welcome back to my sermon podcast uh, here in snowy Chicago today. Uh, looking forward to sharing once again with you as we are in our sermon series about discernment, which I will uh, explain in a moment. Let me first start by reading the passage that we'll be focusing on today. This comes from the book of Esther in the Older Testament. And uh, this is going to be chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And it may be a little bit hard if you don't know the context, but again, I'll explain some more about this in a moment. Uh, So here's chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went through the city, wailing with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and most of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend to her and ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what was happening and why. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and charge her to go to the king to make supplication to him and entreat him for her people. Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a message from Mordecai, saying, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. All alike are to be put to death. Only if the king holds out the gold scepter to someone, may that person live. I myself had not been called to come into the king for thirty days. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from one from another quarter, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. And hold a fast on my behalf, and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. May God's blessing be on the reading and living out of this word. So in our 21st century attempts to get so much done and to cram as much as we can into 24 hours, 
some of us, maybe many of us, resort to multitasking, trying to do two things at once. And sometimes you can. For example, I can listen to a podcast usually while also washing the dishes. But often we try to do things like maybe sit in a meeting with someone and then also check and or write email. And most studies find, I hate to break it maybe to some of you, that it's pretty tough to do. There's an author named Devorah Zak who wrote a book called Single Tasking, Get More Done One Thing at a Time. And she says multitasking is actually a myth. The brain is hardwired to do only one thing at a time. Others have found that multitasking actually decreases our productivity by up to sometimes 40%. When we multitask, we actually lower our IQ because our brains cannot process simultaneously separate streams of information from multiple tasks as much as we like to think perhaps that we can. Multitasking sometimes perhaps finds its way into our spiritual lives too. So sometimes I will Every night I pray what's called the examine, where I look back on the day and reflect on things for which I'm grateful, things for which I need to confess, uh, seeing which ways that God shows up in my life. And so sometimes I have tried to do this while brushing my teeth, thinking I'll multitask, I'll brush my teeth and do the examine. And maybe more spiritually mature people can do this, but I usually find it hard to do. So I think as people of faith, we need to find ways to single task, to give God our undivided attention, especially when it comes to discernment, which I mentioned earlier. Discernment, trying to get a sense of where God is working in our lives, discernment takes intentionality. I mentioned earlier that this sermon series is called What's Next? Because over and over and again in our life, we find ourselves faced with decisions, large and small, what job to take, what do we study, who do we date, should we date, who to marry, should we marry. In Christianity, we call this cultivation of wisdom that guides us through choices, discernment. And this, this, that's what this series is all about. How do we figure things out? How do we invite the Holy Spirit's participation? How do we make hard decisions about what comes next? Now, discernment sounds like really actually a quite important word. If you want to tell someone that you're a person of faith, maybe you might say, I'm discerning right now. We may like the idea of discerning, but maybe not until we realize that it takes not only intentionality, but it takes work and also probably some discomfort. We see an example in today's passage. So again, this is from the book of Esther in the Older Testament. So a little bit of context. Esther begins, the whole book begins by talking about a Persian king named Ahasuerus. Got that one down. uh, He's married, sometimes other translations call it Xerxes. He's married to a woman named Vashti. And Vashti was banished for her refusal to appear at the king's banquet to show her beauty as the king's wish. And so Esther was chosen to succeed her as queen. Now, Esther, it turns out, is Jewish. And this is important because one of the king's advisors is a man named Haman, who it turns out is a pretty rabid anti-Semite. He wants to destroy all the Jews in the land. One of Esther's closest family members, a man named Mordecai, finds out about this. And we see in today's passage what he does in response to this news. Understandably, he laments, he tears his clothes, wears sackcloth and ashes, he wails. 
Esther finds out about this, and her first reaction is, put some clothes on, Mordecai. And then her next response is, what's going on? So Mordecai lays it all out and entreats her to change, do what she can to change the king's mind. So in some sense, Esther's discernment about what to do begins because she makes a quick decision. She goes with maybe what could be called a gut reaction. She says in verse 11, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. All alike are to be put to death. So her initial gut reaction is, are you crazy? There's no way I can do this. And that's understandable. And sometimes we may talk about, you know, your your gut reaction, that first sense is, is the best one. And maybe occasionally that can be true. But I think sometimes gut reactions don't always lead us to the truth. We want to make a decision quickly because we want to maybe get it out of our email box or we want to get it off of our plate. And so we just go with it and we go with that quick decision. But that doesn't always, discernment takes us down a longer path and causes us to be patient. I was reading an article the other day a couple of years ago, J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter books, a couple of years ago, had posted on Twitter a couple of rejection letters of people who said thanks but no thanks to some of her writings. And then that article then showed other famous authors who had been rejected by publishers. In fact, uh, one apparently one publisher, when coming across Herman Melville's Moby Dick, Moby Dick manuscript, uh, responded, first we must ask, does it have to be a whale? You can imagine, publishers probably get manuscripts all the time. And so they're making quick decisions. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And so on the one hand, they have to do it. But without any kind of discernment and getting a sense, sometimes they make responses that they will come later to regret. So gut reaction, every once in a while, maybe the best thing to do, but not always the best thing to do. And so Esther's gut reaction, that no way can I do this, is not what Mordecai wants to hear. And this is where the real discernment takes place. Now, there's a reason why I think discernment is not easy, because there are often nagging voices or senses that push us to think deeply about our decision. It's not easy. We struggle, we wrestle with these decisions. Mordecai does not let her off the hook. In her first response again, she says, if I go, if I ask the king without him asking to meet me first, I will die. And he says, again, verses 13 and 14, do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. But you and your family's father's family will perish. Who knows, perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. So her gut reaction is no, and that nagging feeling, this time coming in the voice and words of Mordecai saying, maybe you want to think about this a little bit more closely. Yes, this is a very hard decision. Yes, it may cause sacrifice, but you need to think carefully about this decision. So now she realizes, perhaps, I do need to take some time with this. 
She doesn't use the word discernment, but we see here perhaps she's going through just such a process. She says, go, gather all the Jews to be found, hold a fast on my behalf, neither eat nor drink for three days, and I and my maids will also fast as you do. So here we see that Esther is intentional. She is single-tasking. She is going to fast with others. She wants to make sure that she makes the right decision and petition God in the process. She's intentional. And that's what discernment, I think, partly is all about, that we are single-focused, single-tasking, making sure that I am putting all of my thoughts and prayers into one thing. And there are lots of ways that can help us to do that. One of the things that we see in the passage and that we're talking about at Durban Village is fasting. You may have heard of fasting, specifically around food, that we do without food for a certain time. So what is it? What does it do? What does it do for us? Well, one of our site pastors, Hannah Carden, has listed four different things that fasting does in our lives. First of all, it disrupts our lives. Each time, unconscious habits that we might typically do are interrupted by our fasting practice when we say to ourselves, oh, right, I can't eat that. Or, oh, yeah, I'm not going, I've decided not to watch that right now. The disruption gives our bodies and minds a chance to remember God anew and see where God is working in our lives in the moments we usually do not take to seek God's presence. Fasting means sacrifice. It's hard encourages us to temporarily give up something that we that we use often, that we enjoy, maybe sometimes that we even need. We make sacrifices. And maybe that develops within us the ability to sacrifice for others, for our values, for God. And maybe it re- helps us to remember how meaningful sacrifices others have made for us are. So it disrupts, fasting disrupts. It sac- means sacrifice and it prepares us too. This is how it's often used in the scriptures. A group of people or a person facing a challenge will fast and pray, prepare their hearts and souls for the challenge ahead, seeking God's accompaniment, but also clarification. So disruption, sacrifice, preparation, and finally dependence. When we fast for a short time, it's a reminder of just how much God gives to us and how much maybe that we take for granted. Fasts can be a deep spiritual reminder that we are dependent on God, that we are dependent on our wider community, without which our food and daily habits would not exist, not be possible. Fasting, to decide to fast, whether you are giving up food or a kind of food at Urban Village starting on Monday, we are, some are beginning a Daniel fast, and I'm sending an email out to our folks at Urban Village if you would like to get more information about what the Daniel fast is, feel free to email me, christian at urbanvillagechurch.org. But we're asking people to, to fast in some capacity as a way of being intentional and a way maybe to do some of these things, to disrupt our lives, to sacrifice, to prepare our hearts, to remind ourselves of our dependence on God. So whether we give up food for a particular kind of time or for you, if that would be a challenge, what else could you give up? Could you give up social media? Could you give up watching TV? Uh, I've done various Lenten practices. Lenten, Lent is often a time for fasting. Last year, I gave up, uh, our family gave up sugar for Lent, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. I love my ice cream, 
But not only that, giving up sugar made me realize sugar is everywhere. And so even not just going without sugar, but it's things like reading the ketchup bottle to see, does this have ketchup or does this have sugar in it? And that was a reminder to me, this is why I'm doing it. It's hopefully bringing me back and reminding myself of who God is in my life. Now, fasting is not a magic formula. Just because we fast doesn't mean that we will automatically, at the end of that time of fast, that the answer will pop up before us in an envelope. But hopefully, fasting will focus us to really pay attention to the different movements of God in our lives, continually remind us more so of God's work in our life, more than we would normally pay attention to. I read an article several years ago by uh, an author named Lauren Winner. She's a religious writer and scholar, and she wrote one Lent about a fast that she went through, and she went to her uh, priest She's Episcopalian. She went to a priest and said, I'm going to fast. I'm going to give up meals during Lent. And she writes that she was feeling pretty good about herself, about this uh, sacrifice that she was going to be making in order to help her draw closer to God. And then she writes about she was meeting with her priest to tell him about this. And he said, well, that's fine. You're doing this. And then I'm reading from the article here. Her priest said to her, I want to encourage you to give up something to God that really matters, something you really love, something that is hard to do without. And then he said, Lauren, I want you to give up reading for Lent. And she writes, I glanced down at the book I had brought with me. And she said, or he said then in response, reading, it seems to me, is something you really love. It may be the thing you love most. He said, I would like you to give up reading for Lent. I think you might time, spend some of the time you spend with books, connecting with others. And at first she said, yes, okay, I'll do it. No problem. She said, you know, reading is really my fallback activity. What I do is read. And the priest said, no, reading is my fallback activity. Reading is your life. And then she goes on to describe this process and the temptation she had because she loved to read more than anything. And she slipped a couple times and devoured a couple of different books. And then as she reflected back on the process, she writes, I'm not sure if Lent 2016 will see me giving a self-satisfied sermon about how much I look forward to my annual reading fast, but I do think it will, I do think I will give up reading again next year. Giving up reading did not just leave me with more free time, it also left me starkly alone with my life. I read for many reasons, for information, for pleasure, and because I want to figure out the craft of putting a sentence together. But I know I also read to numb any feelings of despair or misery. Even before Lent, she writes, I had suspected that I used reading just this way as a tonic or escape route. When I am upset or sad, my cure is to get absorbed in some feel-good small-town novel I read a dozen times. During Lent, I didn't have that cure. I found myself, not surprisingly, praying more. I prayed more because I had time on my hands, and I prayed more because I didn't have my usual distractions. I was face-to-face with my sadness and my mistakes, and I couldn't take them to reading. I had to take them to God. 
And she reflects that may be what the priest had intended. He didn't want me to give up reading just because it was the equivalent of some dearly loved possession, but instead because it might move me closer to God. And that's, I think, what fasting can do for us. When we decide to give something up for a particular amount of time, it can conjure up all kinds of things. But hopefully what it does is it interrupts us and we think more carefully and clearly about God and who God is in our lives. And hopefully that can also then lead us to some clarity about decisions that we need to make. So I'd encourage you to think about fasting. And again, if you want more information about how we're doing that at Urban Village, feel free to reach out to me and I'm happy to share uh, that with you, that information with you. But think about for the next, say, we are going to start fasting on Monday through February 6th. And um, again, encouraging people to give something up or to uh, participate in this Daniel fast, this way of, of following a diet. And Hopefully that will lead you to change your behaviors a bit, and it may lead you to think about rather than just going to something that we depend on to take us away from challenge or sacrifice or sadness or frustration, it takes us back to God. That's the hope. And doing so, reminding us that we do not do this alone, just as Esther did not do it alone, that once we come upon this single task, that we are able to realize who is the one who is the single most important presence in our own lives, the loving presence of God. And I hope this process can help you get to that point in your own life too. Amen. Well, friends, thank you for listening once again to this podcast. I will be back again next week. Uh, with more reflections on discernment. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, feel free to reach out to me with any questions or comments. My website is christiancoon.com and my email, christian at urbanvillagechurch.org. And so I will be back with you next week. May the peace of Christ be with you.